to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military and specialty areas, including operational aviation psychology. We address the question, what is military psychology? And answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. This episode is brought to you by Grid Energy Solutions, LLC, striving to enhance the resiliency and network recovery capabilities of the nation's electric power grid. Grid Energy's mission is to facilitate the restoration of the American electric power grid in the event of catastrophic failures resulting from natural events or human actions. For more information, please inquire at contact at grid-energy.com. Welcome back to Diversity Dialogues. My name is Captain Tracy Began. I'm a clinical psychologist in the Army and currently serving with the 25th Cab over in Schofield Barracks. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Deb Angeron, and we're very excited to have Lieutenant Colonel Promotable Angeron here to talk about her experiences being a leader in the military and in psychology. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lieutenant Colonel Angeron. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you have quite an extensive history and background in leadership positions within Army psychology. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences as a military psychologist? Sure. So I joined the Army in 2002 into internship and actually went to Eisenhower Army Medical Center for my internship and took my first deployment out of there to Iraq, 2005-2006. Served on faculty at Eisenhower for several years subsequent to my deployment then went to serve, uh, well, went to train some more. So I did a two-year fellowship in pediatric psychology at Madigan Army Medical Center before moving to Brook Army Medical Center to take over as the Army Internship Director. During my time there is probably the most leadership positions I held. I was oversaw all of the training programs, behavioral health training programs at Brook Army Medical Center, which were three fellowships, two internships, a residency, and as well as working with Amid Center in school at the time to allow six, eight x-rays, and some nurse practitioners to rotate through the behavioral health department. So trying to coordinate, at one time, probably 70 trainees running through a single department. Some point in that time frame, our department chief deployed. And so as a a relatively junior major uh, with more senior officers in the department, I was selected by the DCCS to run the deployment during that 10-month period. And then subsequent to that, I did my own second deployment at Guantanamo as a consultant, uh, psychology consulting with uh, detention facilities in Guantanamo. And then probably skipping ahead a little bit, probably my most challenging leadership role has been working at the Surgeon General's office in the Behavioral Health Division, serving as the Deputy Chief for the Behavioral Health Service Line. Starting about two and a half years ago, I became the Army Consultant for Psychology to the Surgeon General and had probably for three years prior to that actually served as a deputy consultant. So been involved in leadership within psychology for a number of years. That's a pretty extensive history as far as being in leadership roles. Can you share a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced as a woman in those roles with our audience? Sure. I mean, I think the first assignment is always kind of the more challenging one. 
particularly my first deployment, I was a young psychologist, not a young individual, having had prior military service, was deploying uh, slightly older than, than probably most of my psychology peers. But myself and one female tech were sent out to cover an area with about 15,000 soldiers. Back then, there were no real BHOs. There were no behavioral health officers. So an officer was assigned out of a cost unit. And those are your people. Travel, do what they need you to do, figure it out, and move out. So you were constantly introducing yourself to everywhere from company level to division level leadership and trying to demonstrate your subject matter expertise in a location where often there were very few women that we would even run into. There were some locations we went to, there were no women at all. Other locations, there were other folks, so we weren't really the only game in town. But I think as a young female officer, one of the first command directives I did was was a National Guard soldier who had physically assaulted another soldier with his weapon, requiring that other soldier to get paravac to have his orbital socket repaired. So a pretty significant injury, a pretty purposeful act. And so a typical command director, as we all know how to do, completed my evaluation, went over to see the brigade commander to explain to him what my observations were, what my recommendations were. The individual had described a very prolific history of antisocial behavior with absolutely no remorse and clear intent to act as he saw fit should anyone else cross him or do something he felt warranted a consequence. So I made what we all would consider a pretty standard recommendation of this person should not have a loaded weapon. This person really should not even be in theater and really should not even be in the reserves and laid it all out. And I was summarily dismissed. I was pretty much told, uh, thank you for playing in relatively polite terms, but I know what I'm doing and I don't need you. And that's kind of a hard one to take that, that first, you know, little injury of like, but I'm the subject matter expert. But it was an infantry brigade. They didn't really see the purpose for behavioral health and certainly didn't see the need for a female in their, in their business. You know, but life has a way sometimes of bringing it back around. And sure enough, the individual at some point reoffended, and my comments were taken a little bit differently the second time. But gaining credibility with basically 100% male organizations can be an uphill battle for a woman. If you're too friendly, they may make certain verbiages about you or treat you as dismiss you for a different reason. Well, we can dismiss you because you're just, you know, whatever. Or misinterpret what you do or don't do. You're being too friendly. You're not being friendly enough. Where's the middle ground? And there's a different, there was always a different expectation for how I should interact or even my tech, a young female, should interact compared to what was going around on around us. I would say we probably had to get used to, and for me, Coming from Navy life, it wasn't very hard. We had to get used to language and attitudes that were very blunt and at times coarse, which doesn't really offend me. Like I said, I, I served seven years in the Navy. I, they probably couldn't say anything that I hadn't heard before. So it's kind of a delicate balance of appropriately trying to maintain discipline and have people interact appropriately, but at the same time, accepting their culture for what it is and being able to function efficiently within that culture, if that kind of makes sense. There were a lot of probably some missed opportunities on my part and, and kind of probably with any job, you know, about six months into it, you're really starting to get your rhythm and things are starting to build credibility as, as a female and as a psychologist. And then, of course, at that point, they always swapped units out at six month marks. So all the National Guard and Reserve units left and 101st came in. Um, <laughs> so then we start over um, <laughs> with uh, some folks that even had a different attitude compared to the Reserve and National Guard um, folks that I worked with. Wow. 
So what you're saying is is something I've heard a lot of female officers talk about is the perception of how do you, one, gain that credibility with that dominantly male organization and the spectrum of either you're viewed as too soft, kind, easygoing, and a pushover versus you're assertive, maybe some colorful language types of adjectives being described and not approachable. Whereas if there was a male in that role with that same behavior, same tone of voice, same, you know, bottom line up front kind of attitude, they would be taken very differently. Absolutely. I think, you know, and and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, use the word assertive, aggressive, and those traits, depending on if it's a male or female we're describing, are viewed in our culture as either positive or negative, depending on the gender of the person which has always kind of fascinated me in some way, especially given the culture of the organization we find ourselves in, right? Military psychology already pulls for a particular kind of approach to life. And they value your ability to shoot your weapon and your ability to be physically fit and to run with them and jump within them and do what they do. But (laughs) don't be too aggressive, right? And often I find that when that word is typically used, we're really just being assertive. We're not being aggressive, we're being assertive, but in those situations, it may not be viewed that way. Though I do think as I moved up in rank and moved up within organizations, that bottom line up front, matter of fact, assertiveness didn't get viewed as much in a negative way as it was before. That's kind of a double-edged sword because it was, was it because I was of more rank and so they were being respectful because of the rank? Was it that I was moving into more of the medcom side of the house and leadership within a hospital and they wanted me to be assertive and to do things a certain way to address issues, but there were often lots of negative words that were used toward me because I believe that I was just being assertive. I view myself as very much a behaviorist when I first started even supervising civilians, let alone students and young officers. For me, it was a very objective, unemotional, this is a standard, meet the standard. If you don't meet the standard, I'm going to hold you accountable. And yet often it was viewed in the lens of I was being too hard and too harsh and too mean. But if a male officer probably had that exact same expectation for them, I don't know that it would have been viewed in that way. So again, that double standard of if you're a woman, you should be the kind, nurturing, gentle person. And if you hold people accountable to standards then you're mean, overlording, and creating a toxic work environment. Potentially. And yet, when they want our, on the clinical side of the house, when a brigade commander or battalion commander wants our opinion, they don't want us to be too soft, right? They don't want it. They, they want us to be the ones that are kind of backing their play when sometimes that is appropriate because it is behaviors, not behavioral health, right? And so we're helping command to really tease those two things apart and say, yes, that's very much a discipline issue in your lane. That is not my lane. That's not behavioral health. It's, there's nothing going on here that would be kind of psychiatrically that would mitigate that particular misconduct. In that case, they want me to be the hardliner, right? In the evaluation of their person and in holding people to standards, but maybe not so much when it's directed toward them individually or personally, maybe that's it. And I think it often comes down to, and probably could even take it outside of the military lane and say, you know, what are individuals' comfort with being, having a boss, a female boss, be that a female or a male? What is it to them? And what are their expectations of how that supervisory role should occur based on the gender of the supervisor and the gender of themselves? 
So as you navigated these challenging situations and, you know, came through and were able to discern like, okay, wait a second, is this me? And where am I at? And what's my kind of true north for how you're going to be as a psychologist, as a military leader? Were there any mentors in your life that helped guide you through that process? I think a lot of peer sounding boards. And part of that is more tied to my personality. I'm very much an introvert. I am a very stubborn individual, as if you would ask my parents, and kind of do a lot of internal reflection and kind of come to where I am and then tend to, to bounce things off of other people. But I think it's been more particularly based on where Army psychology was when I first came in. We had a division psychologist and a division psychiatrist, and that's all we had. And we didn't have anything else. And so we weren't as scattered to the winds, you know, as we are now, where, where people are really kind of out there inside brigades, inside organizations, you were either in division, which is, again, that top part of the tier on the MTO side, or you were in a hospital. That's, you know, when I entered, those are the two lanes. That was kind of where you were going to be. And we've gone to that, from that to we're scattered all over the place. And so I think it was a lot more of consulting with peers who were somewhere else in the Army experiencing something similar, because we didn't have a lot of females above us that kind of had that experience. Their experience at least as, as an Army psychologist, it was a very different experience than what we saw as we really started pushing out behavioral health assets closer to the soldiers. And thinking about the males that were within that organization, what did you find as far as the relationship between males and females in the psychology realm in the military and the Army specifically? I think it's always personal beliefs. We have They've all retired now, so it's okay. The first three psychologists that I worked with at Eisenhower, who were initially my faculty and then were fellow faculty members when I was on faculty, all had been in the military. Most of them were nearing retirement at that time. So, so they had been in you know, 20 plus years. Some of them had been kind of line officers before they went to USIS or other places and, and became psychologists. Um, and even they had very different opinions and perspectives the role of women in the military and what kind of units they should be in and they should not be in. And I think there was also the predominance of, well, psychiatry should always be the leadership role. Mm. And obviously we've come a long way in the army from separate, you know, departments, but still ultimately it was always psychiatry that had to lead on behavioral issues. They were the folks that leaders consulted with. They consulted with psychiatrists about things. And I think the tenor has changed so dramatically I were, uh, you know, A, number one, we're, we're way back into fully multidisciplinary approaches to our treatment models and to our teams. We collapsed three departments into one, and we've pushed out psychology and social work well out beyond the extent to where psychiatry is, is down at the tactical level with folks. And so I think that has created additional dynamics that I don't think were even thought of when I came in the Army. You know, when I interviewed for internship, I was going to graduate school in D.C., so I went over to Andrews Air Force Base, and I talked to some of the psychologists that were there, and I considered applying to, to the Air Force, and I ruled out the Navy immediately. And the reason I ruled out the Navy immediately, because at the time, the only place psychologists worked were hospitals. Mm. They weren't on ships. They weren't out there with units, and so my goal for how I wanted to practice didn't align itself with either the Air Force model or the Navy model that I saw at the time. And at least with the Army model, there were some behavioral health positions inside of combat arms. Not many, but there were some. 
And so it was even the concept of how I wanted to practice that pulled me into that particular space. And it was probably, I, I couldn't go back and remember when. I remember seeing the news and I was so excited when they started putting the first psychologist on aircraft carriers. And I was like, yes, <laughs> like, we got there, we got there. Um, but I think there's, back to your kind of original question, I think there are some male psychologists based on their own concepts of how they view the army and combat arms and the role of women within the military that in some ways it mirrors some of the combat arms leaders. And in some ways it's much more of a, they can do just as good of a job as I can. They should be right where I am and they see no true difference, but it just gets dicey no matter which way you look at it. I, I remember the first time I spoke with a, a young male who had concerns about the kind of brigade he would go into and if that would be an appropriate or a clash between who he was and what his identity was and what he perceived would be the expectation if he found himself in a light infantry brigade. And those are real. Um, goodness of fit matters. And sometimes that's achievable as long as you can know yourself very well and know that organization and maybe the ideal is is one place but you kind of recognize where you need to start at and how can you make progress toward where you ultimately think it should be and that may not happen during your tenure there it may be that you carry that ball part way there and then you have to hand it over to someone else and and they have to finish i used to tell junior officers that whenever i got a job the first thing i looked to do with two things a figure out who my replacement was like goodness of fit and B, work myself out of a job, make enough progress in that job that if it was a prevention job or something else, that I had created a much healthier organization that they truly had less need of me in my clinical psychology role and could utilize me in other ways. And then I felt like I had kind of, or even changed their perspective of behavioral health or psychology in general, then I've made some inroads. And I kind of view that the same way with females in the military, right? We've made inroads. We're not where we need to be, we're not fully accepted, but we're also not fully rejected. And any organization as large as the one that we are in doesn't make sudden changes. It's not automatic. It's not, oh, we were wrong. Let's fix it. They do man overboard drills in the Navy and they throw something overboard that simulates an individual. And then how long does it take to turn around a ship? A ship will travel sometimes a mile, talking about an aircraft carrier, before it can change its direction and get to where it needs to be. And I think it's the same way with women in the military. As we keep knocking down doors and going into organizations we've never been in before, we're kind of starting over in that particular organization. And we have to remember that. We can't expect to be viewed the way we've made progress to date within certain kinds of organizations. We're stepping into a new, much more male, much more a ranger regiment, the 160th, we're stepping into a very different kind of organization. And we can't, it's probably partially unhealthy <laughs> and too unrealistic to expect that they just should accept me as I view myself, as I feel I should be viewed. And I think if we can remember that, we're more likely to make progress. But it does require a woman in the military to have a very thick skin. It just does. You're going to see things, you're going to hear things. And if that immediate reaction tears you down so much, your ability to truly find a way to be functional in that organization and get the credibility that you deserve, right? And get, ensure your full abilities as a psychologist will be utilized and leveraged by that organization, 
is up to how you figure out how to help that organization make that transition to treat you in that way, right? Those are some really good, helpful hints for just as I'm listening, as an officer who's in her first BHO assignment, you know, really that thick skin is important. Because if I crumble at everything that I think is unfair or take everything personal that's said, or maybe something I feel might be a slight, either as a psychologist or as a woman, you know, I would crumble and I'd be completely ineffective. But then also having that growth mindset of saying, okay, it's not where it should be or where we would hope it could be, but what can I do to help promote that growth and in that direction? Like you said, kind of being that rudder on that ship to maybe I'm not going to see it all the way through, but maybe I can start pushing it in that direction to open up, you know, maybe minds and opinions of our value as one leaders, military leaders, first and foremost, and psychologists and women in that role. Absolutely. Right. Because it's, people have biases. It's interesting. We just had our OPD to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) People have biases. And what tears down those biases is getting to know an individual that because of their characteristics, demographics, or whatever, they fall into that group that you have preconceived notions about. And yet, by just their very existence and how they interact with you, not by directly challenging you, and I mean, obviously, there are times when we need to challenge, but not by directly challenging you and calling you out, but just by being who they are and being good at what they do kind of forces you to go, oh, oh, I said no women should be in combat armed unit, but you're okay. You're, you're, you're the exception. You're, you're all right. It's like, well, you know, maybe I'm not a unicorn. Maybe it's not just me. That's okay. Maybe, you know, what you're realizing is that, you know, women actually can do this job. Psychologists actually can do this job. But if they go in and demand that you view me in a certain way, the likelihood of that being completely rejected is much higher. I mean, I come back to, we are psychologists. We understand human behavior. We know how to persuade and influence. And we have to take that approach, even from the standpoint of getting ourselves accepted in the reality of that we are women and that we are leaders and we can be leaders, is we have to do that through using the skill sets that we know versus kind of expecting it and therefore demanding it or expecting it and thus not getting it. I I quit. I don't want to be a part of this because I didn't get accepted or viewed in the way that I feel that I'm entitled to or in the way that I should be. They're all probably correct. You shouldn't be, you know, talked to it in a way or you shouldn't hear those things or, or language shouldn't be said that way around you. But it's not our culture, it's their culture. And the more credibility I gain in an organization, you know, I, I still remember a couple of times, you know, when I was deployed and someone would say something just a little too colorful. And I'd be like, so you say that in front of your sister. And then they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I'm like, it's okay. But like, you know, come on, dude. So again, the ability is a little bit of humor and a little bit of pushback. But again, that wasn't a first approach, right? That was a, I got credibility in some different ways within the organization, which then allowed me the freedom to start challenging some of the status quo. And again, not wholesale revolt, but slowly but surely, right? How do I start? And then people start policing themselves too, right? You made inroads with us three or four people, and then somebody else says something that's way too far out. And the guy whaps the other guy in the back of the head and said, Hey, remember. <laughs> Go there. Come on. <laughs> Come on. You know, and that's not always going to happen, but you know, it's kind of a time and a place for, for everything. And, you know, I always drew this analogy. So the very large fobs in Iraq and some in Afghanistan were like little cities. I mean, mm-hmm. 
they had the green bean coffee, they had the, they had a subway, they had, you know, they had all these kind of amenities. And then you might run through my, I would be on a convoy that would go through one of those. And then we go up into the mountains to some satellite relay station where 15 soldiers are living for mm. four weeks at a time. And then they kind of start rotating through to go get a shower and get clean clothes, right? Well, they have a certain way of living in that remote, austere environment that helps them to cope with all the issues that they're dealing with of being in that situation and what all they're experiencing while they're up there. And it was always disheartening to see and to try to make changes. So those same soldiers, I would see them up there when we, we went up every two weeks just to kind of check on them and as part of our route. And then we'd end up back at one of those really large fobs and going over to the DFAC and someone's standing there in crisp, clean uniform and those soldiers are coming in. They're they're grody, but they didn't have running water. I mean, they didn't have anything. You know, they've been eating MREs, and maybe if they were lucky, they found some way to make a homemade grill to get some steaks once a month brought out there to them, and they cook up some steaks. You know, but they're dirty, they're hot, they're tired, but they want a hot meal. They haven't had one in however many weeks. And they go to the defect line, and the guy there is, like, trying to turn them away. Like, you're out of uniform, blah, 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 blah. And that's such a jarring event for those soldiers, right? They're fighting for their country. They're doing this hard work. They're way up there. All you people have all the luxury, again, from their mindset, have all the luxuries in the world. And you're giving me a hard time about X. So when there's a full frontal challenge, it is rarely successful. And it typically only exacerbates any boundary that is already there. And so it makes the wall taller for you to climb. And so it is, in my opinion, much better to kind of, again, we're looking for a little bit of behavioral change, but I can't be getting that until I, and even kind of nudgingly trying to get that until I've established some level of my own credibility as an officer first. It doesn't matter if I'm the best psychologist in the world. If I'm not a good officer, again, I don't have credibility. So build that credibility, keep that thick skin, and then figure out how you can start shaping and adjusting their culture to help them come to the realization that they need to stop thinking about your gender and they need to start focusing on what they should be focusing on. You're an officer in the U.S. Army and you're a psychologist and you're here to help my soldiers in my organization, right? And that's where we have to get to because that's what matters. The mission is what matters. And are we where we need to be? No, but we are, we have women rangers. We have an army psychologist with the regiment right now getting ready to go through RASP. You know, 20 years ago, no one would have even entertained that. But we're not where we need to be. You know, I was reading an article the other day about, you know, female vets' experiences of going into VAs. And some of the male veterans, like, why are you here? This is not your place. This is mine. Nope, it's my place. <laughs> so how do we help our organization move forward? to get toward that place of where we need to be. And it's not going to be all at one time. And it certainly isn't going to be because, well, because I said so, because I demand it, that will probably get us the exact opposite reaction than what we're looking for. That reminds me of an experience I had when I was going through Bullock and I was in my uniform and just had to run in the store real quick. And there was an older gentleman who said, this kind of looked at me a little funny and said, wow, they let females as officers in now? 
boy, have things changed. <laughs> like, yes, sir, they have. <laughs> Thank you for your service. I'm glad you served. <laughs> just, you know, walked off. But, but just it was jarring. Like, there's still folks who that is a new experience. And if I would have, you know, gotten huffy and like, how dare you? And I served just since you served. And, you know, that would have been a very poor interaction, a very poor kind of interaction with him with a female officer and what that construct would be in his mind. And I often think about how do I channel my inner Albert Ellis? Am I shitting on myself? I need to stop shitting on myself. Um, And as unfair as it always is, right? We always say that you have, you know, it takes forever to build a reputation. It takes half a second to lose one, right? It takes half a second. And it's very unfair, but that each of us as women who go into an organization will be, for some of them, how they judge all women in the military and about whether it should or should not be happening. And that's so unfair, right? We would not pick any one soldier out and go this. <laughs> and how well you, you do, represent you represent all men and this experiment gone wrong. It's very unfair, but it's also something that we need to be very aware of. And it was the same thing. You know, when we first started pushing psychologists and social workers forward in in 2003 and 2004, at a point in 2005, a lot of different challenging experiences, didn't really think anything about it, came home, kept my head down, what's to do next, the next sort of stuff, and was interviewing for a job for an assignment, a particular assignment, three years later, and these officers were interviewing me and started saying different things, and it's like, I didn't tell anybody about my deployment, how do you know that? How, how, how do you know that I did that? Word also travels very quickly, right? So not only is your performance and your tenor impacting your organization, those leaders will talk to their leaders and either be like, hey, behavioral is the best thing since sliced bread. Hey, these women rock or vice versa, right? So that drop in the pond, that ripple effect, be it good or bad, is how we also impact beyond where we reach and beyond where we interact. And so it's very unfair. We're getting, you know, (laughs) other women are going to get judged by how we do or don't do, but that's the reality of trying to change any organization. When something new comes forward, unfairly, the bar is higher, but it also means that any change in any organization requires us just to, you know, recognize that we're a part of something that to me is pretty awesome to see women reaching out into the various organizations that they're reaching out to and doing all kind of very interesting things. But you have to be patient and you have to have a thick skin and you have to be strategic about your approach to what kind of change you're trying to bring about. Ma'am, thank you so much for your time and just your words of wisdom and sharing your experiences and really being one of those trailblazers for us and opening up some of those inroads for women in psychology in the army. So thank you again for spending your time and your sharing your expertise with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, I hope you tune in next time for our follow-up to this episode with Dr. Brad Johnson and Dr. David Smith, as they talk about how men can be allies and mentors to women in leadership positions. Until next time, be well, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.